Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. On Saturday, January 21st, Ashley Judd captivated the crowd at the Women's March in Washington. While most people simply know her as an actor in films and television, her real center lies as an activist for health and social justice. I had a chance to interview Ashley Judd when she was on tour in 2011 for her memoir, All That is Bitter and Sweet, which deals with her early life and later activism. For those who only know her through her film and TV work, you'll find this discussion an eye-opener. My guest is Ashley Judd, who has a memoir, All That is Bitter and Sweet. Ashley Judd has been in several movies over the years, two Broadway shows. She has an MA in public administration from Harvard University and is an activist in the areas of AIDS and HIV education. Feminism in uh, Africa and Asia deals specifically in many ways with abuses created by prostitution around the world. Ashley Judd, this particular memoir is kind of interesting because you take us through your early life and then you skip the entire period of time when you're a movie star and pretty much pick it up in 2003. How conscious was that decision and why? Well, the book is driven very much by the diaries that I've kept visiting the Global South, doing social justice work, human rights, and public health. It's not about Hollywood. I was actually making a picture in the Bay Area in 2002 when Population Services International, which is a leading international public health agency, reached out to me and asked if I would consider representing their HIV programs as global ambassador. And so the movie making is really quite incidental to the process. I accepted PSI's generous invitation and in 2004 began my travels with them and absolutely, I don't even know if fell in love is a strong enough expression. I was completely taken with the work. I felt like it was the realization of my core principles and values. And all of a sudden, although I started in 2004, fast forward to 2011, I've been to 13 countries around the world, some of them repeatedly. And I had written 650 pages of diaries discussing what I have witnessed. And the witnessing includes the sacred narratives of disempowered people who have been willing to be vulnerable with me and share their life stories, which includes tremendous resilience, and the grassroots programs that PSI and others like them operate, as well as the spiritual process that I necessarily found trying to cope with and stay alive, and sometimes I mean that quite literally, while choosing to wade into human rights atrocities. And so that's really what the book is. In terms of your early life then, because it does take us in detail up until around the age of 15 or 16, that came through the diaries that you made when you were at the Shades then? I became willing to share some of my background because readers were telling me that it helped provide an essential context 
there were people who read my writings from abroad who understandably wondered why I was so attracted to slums, brothels, orphanages, why I chose to spend time in clinics in the global south and in this country would be condemned buildings, why I had the willingness to take the risk of carrying stories of exploited people to lawmakers and the General Assembly of the United Nations. My own story, of course, in many ways is very different. The circumstances in which I was raised are not terribly similar, yet the emotional identification is strong. And in particular, empathy was one of the results of having been raised the way I was raised. And I'm very much an adherent to Rabbi Hillel's powerful quote that if I am not for myself, who will be for me? And so that's one of the reasons why I share my story. I've had to learn to advocate my own best interests. I've had to learn to take a stand on my own behalf. And the second part, of course, is if I'm only for myself, what am I? So I can't stop with my own recovery. I cannot keep what I have unless I give it away. So just as I've learned to advocate for myself, it is spiritually incumbent upon me to advocate for others. And then, of course, here we are in Berkeley. Everybody knows about the fierce urgency of now, if not now, when. During your period as a movie star, which is ongoing, but let's take it up to 2003, from when you first got your modeling and began acting, what kind of political thoughts were running through your head? Was your later life growing? What was happening during those years to turn Ashley Judd from a movie star or and an actress into this multidimensional person who travels around the world? Well, when I was at the University of Kentucky, 86 to 90, I had a French major, four minors, and I did the entire honors program curriculum. And rabble-rousing, I like to say, was informally my major. I joined every progressive organization at the student center. I led a campus-wide walkout of classes to protest the ongoing membership of a racist member of the Board of Trustees. I spent the majority of my time at the Kappa Kappa Gamma House, holed up in the kitchen with our African-American cook, trying to figure that out, you know, race in Kentucky. So the part of me that has that furious need for feminist social justice has always been there. I became really distracted with a successful Hollywood career. In 1990, I was actually on my way to Sub-Saharan Africa to join the Peace Corps. And at the last minute, I changed my mind. I had a sense that if I didn't give acting a try as a younger woman, that I probably never would, and that I might, as a consequence, have a regret for the rest of my life, that I hadn't at least given it a go. So I went out west, I did the acting thing, and it all came to me very, very quickly. I mean, I got Ruby in Paradise almost immediately. That won the Sundance Film Festival. And the next thing I knew, I was a working actor. And very quickly after that, I was a movie star, this ingenue. And I know that wonderful quote that youth is often wasted on the young, and someone mentioned that to me, actually. So I enjoyed those years. I mean, I was highly cognizant of how privileged and special those opportunities were. Yet increasingly, as I progressed through, especially, you know, the slick movies with those phenomenal paychecks, I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. You know, I had not dealt with the family of origin stuff. I had been adversely affected by coming from an alcoholic family system. I had no idea that there was hope and help for friends and families of alcoholics. I didn't know that my grandfather's drinking had, you know, somehow impaired as well as all the other stuff. There was mental illness, depression, all that kind of stuff. So 
you know, when I got the opportunity through PSI and was reached out to by Bono and Bobby Shriver to get involved with extreme poverty alleviation, it was a relief. You know, it was a relief. It was a return to how I had made meaning as a younger woman and an opportunity to have the really good excuse to walk away from those fat paychecks, which were ringing quite hollow. During that period, I mean, had you been talking to other activist actors like Sean Penn, or you were just completely going movie to movie, going from set to home and set to home at that point? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Were you considering, like, for instance, Penn, you know, will specifically look at least part of the time, it looks like most of the time, at films with social significance. Were you beginning to look at that, too? No. I can't say that I lived with a lot of intentionality during that time in my life. So that trip in 2003 was a real eye-opener for you then? It was who I always really thought I was. It's interesting. I have a whole bunch of questions here that I'm not going to ask because they involve your career, but it, it seems as if your career is you know, almost like the day job, you know, in, in retrospect. I can't really say that it's that important to me. It's, yeah. not, it's not how I make my meaning. Then let's move on a little bit. Here we are in America in 2011. I wonder what any of us can do in terms of not just the country, but the world. What do you think you can do? And in terms of that, what kind of follow-up can you do? And, and specifically, Faxon in Thailand made promises but he was corrupt and he was thrown out. You know, were there follow-ups to that? Well, I think that my personal experience and any expertise I have is really at that grassroots level. Okay. And it's interesting you mentioned Thailand because I was thinking this morning about one of the first grassroots programs I ever saw that absolutely inspired me. I was blown away by it. And it was a reproductive health and HIV AIDS prevention education program offered during lunchtime at garment factories. And the program would be presented uh, three times in succession over the lunch period and would reach a thousand vulnerable girls and women a day, a day. And this is a population that's highly at risk because they're poor and there's a lot of commercial sexual exploitation in the area and they work indoors and so their skin tends to be a lighter color which is preferred amongst people who are prone to buying prostituted sex and the idea that these women and girls could be fed a nutritious meal be provided safe drinking water and receive information about modern family planning, as well as HIV, AIDS, and STD prevention, was so exciting to me. And it was done through music and art. And everyone was given the opportunity to reflect back in their preferred way what they had learned. And so I was like the jury for the art contest. And it was remarkable. The uptake of information was remarkable. It's a very inexpensive program, and it's operated uh, by PSI and our local partners. And that's the kind of thing that really turns me on. That's the work that I enjoy. And another example, of course, are the audio video mobile units, trucks that are outfitted um, to go to areas that are very difficult to reach. Um, we operate these trucks all over the world um, in countries with you know, p- very poor infrastructure. And some t- in some cases, folks have never been exposed to any kind of media, or they may have you know radios, but they can only turn them on for 20 minutes or so a day. And these beautiful, dynamic, empowered, lively, 
uh, presentations are made in local dialect, completely delivered within the um, appropriate local cultural context, and folks are given life-saving and life-changing communication. And I just want to throw out a statistic regarding HIV in particular. In the 15 most adversely affected HIV countries in sub-Saharan Africa, the incidence amongst young people has fallen by 25% related to behavior change communication, BCC it's called for short. And peer education and behavior change communication works, and it costs less than $10 per young person reached per year. That's less than the cost of a pizza. What kind of, of uh, assistance or pressure do you get from the local governments when you're going in? I mean, is the fact that some people might have seen your movies, does that smooth it or does it not really mean anything? Well, the relationship is with PSI. You know, the relation, I'm just a member of the board of the right. directors and the Hollywood thing precedes me. Um, most people haven't really seen my movies. I mean, some have, but Hollywood carries a cachet like Mickey Mouse. You know, it's an iconic thing that has meaning um, all over the world, but it's more about that collective identity than, you know, my personality as the star of, you know, Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood. And those government relationships are very important to NGOs, PSI included, but it's really about empowering the base and building local capacity and tapping the ingenuity and resourcefulness of the poor who are the experts. And it's their experience that should, from the bottom up, inform policy. There's a lot of fear in terms of NGOs and the issue of paternalism, like we're trying to impose something upon Absolutely. them. Well, the way around it is for the NGO to be operated at the local level by Native peoples. And at PSI, the vast majority of our staff worldwide, we have platforms in 67 countries, are in fact locals. And using survivors and helping people who have been victimized, you know, supporting them through appropriate interventions that allow them to take the most essential journey from victimhood to survivorship is really what the programs are about. If, for example, we can help a poor woman prevent her from contracting malaria, then she can be empowered with her income-generating activities. Her health is improved, so she has more time and self-efficacy to devote to her children. I've come to believe that health is the most essential building block of a productive society. The paternalism factor is very real. It's something that disgusts me personally and that I have to be very vigilant about in my attitudes and in my actions. It's the difference between charity and justice, isn't it? And the difference between pity and empathy. And those are crucial distinctions. And I think that a lot of those folks are very well-intentioned. And hopefully if they find the right mentors and are working with organizations that are culturally sensitive and appropriate, they can transform their attitudes. I mean, in the PSI context and International Center for Research on Women and APNEAP and the other groups with whom I work, they're all locally operated. And hopefully that's not something that's very characteristic of our endeavors. Well, Ashley Judd, let's go back one step. What is PSI? You're on the board right now, and they brought you in, but what is PSI, and how long have they been around? PSI is Population Services International. It's been around for 40 years. It started as a family planning agency. We're a social marketing agency that helps markets work for poor people. So, for example, even in the poorest and most uh, difficult places, 
you can still get a cold, fizzy soda pop. So why not use that local delivery system, which obviously exists, to help people buy or, in some instances, receive at no cost a sachet that purifies contaminated water for drinking. Our safe drinking water programs are remarkable. A sachet costs 10 cents and makes safe for drinking 10 liters of water. This is just one of our programs in 14 countries around the world. With a new long-lasting reversible contraceptive initiative, we helped poor women avert 3 million unintended pregnancies. So it's a remarkable organization. PSI.org is the website. And they did give me a very unique and special window into uh, development, and I'm real grateful to be affiliated with them. You're listening to an interview with Ashley Judd, whose memoir is All That Is Bitter and Sweet. Ashley Judd, a few questions came up, things that I personally didn't know, one of which is in dealing with prostitution, the most important thing is not necessarily educating the women, but educating the men. Well, we can talk about it from a couple of different angles. Um, When we talk about educating men, you know, first and foremost, we should educate them about demand abolition, you know, that it is not appropriate anytime, anywhere to extort sex, whether there's a financial transaction involved or not. I'm really a big fan of Melissa Farley's, and she published a multi-country study not all that long ago that talked about both PTSD and other forms of emotional trauma and stress in women trapped in prostitution, um, and also did a very extensive survey, and the data shows that the most immediate concern of the overwhelming majority of girls and women trapped in prostitution is exiting prostitution. They absolutely want out. And in this country, the average age of entry into prostitution is between 12 and 14. The majority of those girls are survivors of childhood sexual abuse, including Incest. And Andrea Dworkin, of course, said that incest is boot camp for prostitution. So it's all linked. And in terms of HIV AIDS prevention, yeah, it's absolutely crucial to educate men. And there's still a lot of myths worldwide that a healthy looking woman can't be HIV positive or someone who goes to church can't be HIV positive. And we just have to continue the crusade for education and awareness. And as I mentioned earlier, with young people, the education piece really does make a difference. It changes sexual behavior. How do we deal in America with those people who still claim that HIV and AIDS are unrelated? I mean, I think it's nuts. I just give that a good letting alone. My godmother has an expression about a pig because she has a pig as a pet. And she lives in Pacific Heights. And when she first got her pig, folks were a little like, that's kind of weird. You have a pig. She's like, eh. Don't talk about my pig. That's not my pig. And in terms of those debates and the conspiracy theories, I just say, you know what? That's not my pig. I don't like this expression, but I can't think of another one at the moment. I don't have a dog in that fight. And for the folks who are intrigued by it, go for it. You know, but where my focus and energy is right now is prevention. What bothers me is that prevention and treatment have proven extremely successful. And the thought that anybody would argue against prevention just makes me ill. Yeah. That's my view. And you make a very good point about treatment. In 2009, there was a 30% increase of people receiving treatment for the first time, and that is an enormously positive number. In the United States, how can you as a celebrity make a difference, say, in terms of educating, uh, I don't know, say, right-wingers in Kentucky? Gee, funny you'd mention them. You think there are a few? 
you know, I just try to keep my head down and do my thing. And I did, when Mitch McConnell was the Senate Majority Leader, have a behind-closed-doors meeting with him that went very well. It is disturbing and disappointing that the poll recently that asked Americans how much of our budget is directed toward foreign aid revealed a gross misunderstanding. Folks thought as much as 25% of our budget was directed at foreign aid, when in fact it's less than 1%. So I just show up and do shows like this and put it on my website. I tweet about it. You know, I try to remember that people forget that we're all interconnected and our choices here every day do make a difference and have an impact on the lives of the most poor around the world and just carry this message as best I can. Have you made a difference, say, and to pick an example that you talk about toward the end of the book, your dad? I have, yeah. My dad uh, voted in a way that really surprised me in the last election cycle in Kentucky because he's my dad and I love him and I know that he is so pro-me. I feel really safe having these kinds of conversations with him. And I think that that safety is lacking in so much of the public discourse. And so our relationship is a petri dish where both of us can practice taking the conversation out into less safe waters. In terms of your dad, it's always safe. But does that mean that you pretty much stay quiet, you know, in terms of other people? I just try to keep my head down and do my thing. You know, and if people get the message, they get it. I don't know that debating is the best use of me. What I do best is I go to that slum. I sit with survivors of gender violence. I am entrusted with their sacred narratives. I go back to my hotel room and almost ritualistically I write about it. I feel my feelings. That's really what I do well. That is my expertise, you know, and I engage in this spiritual process of alchemy and transformation where the contamination is hopefully somehow transformed into redemption and resilience. And then I take those stories to heads of state, ministers of health, members of parliament. I take those stories to the media. I bring those stories back to America. That's really where I am being leveraged in ways that are effective. Do you think in terms of your acting as an art rather than as a day job, do you think that this changes your work? at all in that area? I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. Would you have tackled something like A Cat on a Hot Tin Roof? Did that come before your your first trip? Or, or yes, after? it was before. The key thing in the timeline is that I went to treatment in 2006 right. and entered recovery. And that changes everything. They say in recovery, you know, we change everything but our name. And in my experience, even things that one would not think are fungible have, in fact, changed in a big way, such as my education, such as my understanding of my genealogy. I just found out that, you know, I, this at least eight-generation Eastern Kentuckian, am also a direct descendant from Mayflower, Pilgrim, mothers and fathers. And so there was a confluence of things happening when PSI reached out to me when Bobby Shriver and Bono reached out to me when I was making, you know, another movie that I wasn't necessarily enjoying. And so my opting out of Hollywood was a multifaceted expression of what was going on in my life. And I chose not to work in recovery for a long time because I really wanted to be grounded in my new way of life. And I was enjoying the feminist social justice so much. 
that the Hollywood piece, it was like a non-factor. It was a non-issue. And I always wanted to go to graduate school. It was something from my undergraduate years that I was determined to do at some point in my life. And then all of a sudden the time was right, you know, so... You can't make a lot of movies when you're at Harvard. They don't let you do a job <laughs> while you are there. Everybody has to, you know, take a leave of absence or resign from whatever job they have when they come into the K school. Well, do you see yourself then just completely dissociating from that side of your life and moving completely into the political sphere? I am going to do a TV series. You know, this is like a glimpse into my brain. I had a couple of choices. I was very interested in applying to be a White House fellow. I thought that that would be a wonderful experience for me. The applications are due January 22nd, 2012. And in the meantime, I was receiving wonderful and very generous offers from lots of people in the Hollywood community to star in movies or star in a TV series. And a TV series came along that seemed like a really good fit. It's network, yet it's even fewer episodes than a cable series. It's only 10 per year. The character is very strong and dynamic. She's, you know, my favorite words, empowered and resilient. There's an emotionally grueling arc, which is something that I seem to do fairly well. I have a strange capacity for those kinds of emotional extremes. And I can bring to it some of the international storylines that are really important to me. So I've decided, hey, what the heck, you know, decision-making is a self-correcting process. I'll give it a go. You know, I've never worked emotionally sober before. I'd like to show up on set in recovery um, and bring to that venue and that domain my new wonderful way of life and see what happens. This will be your first work where you're seriously dealing with the post-recovery Ashley Judd on some level. Yeah, and recovery is an ongoing process. So well, it's yeah, recovering. No, I understand that, yeah. Um, it's a daily reprieve from the madness. You know, I've done a couple of things. A, the wonderful movie, for example, that comes out this fall called Dolphin Tale about Winter, the real-life dolphin with a prosthetic tail who is a hero to amputees worldwide. So I've done a few things. Helen was an extraordinary film about a woman with recurrent major suicidal depression that I did with German auteur Sandra Nettelbach, an extraordinary film. But it was occasional and episodic, that work. And this is going to be a more serious and sustained commitment. And as I said, it's only 10 episodes per year, and that's by design. It gives me ample time to continue my international work. In particular, the production will shut down for a week in July because I'm going back to Congo. Uh, this trip will be with the Clinton Global Initiative, a cohort with whom I serve. Our committee is taking a look at refugees. We want to move the needle on that issue in a big way. Worldwide, 80% of refugees are women and children. And of course, Congo has a massive, forcibly displaced population, uh, really driven by conflict mineral mining and implicating gender violence. So I hope to be able to just be me, do the creative thing, which is equally valid, you know, and it's an expression that's a gift from God, and uh, really work hard on the feminist social justice stuff that's so important to me. Ashley Judd. We have this vision of Rwanda that's completely shifted, but traveling into the Congo horror that you experienced just going in there in the book just came through. I mean, it's hell. Yeah, poverty is hell. Poverty is hell, and it sucks. And Rwanda is blessed with some very 
dynamic, directed, intentional leadership. And I'm sure that there have been very interesting conversations in this community about President Kagame. And is this a new expression of totalitarianism and his constraints on freedom of speech and trying to make sure that a new wave of genocidal ideology does not emerge? You know, say what you want. There have been extraordinary strides made, and Wanda is still very, very poor. You know, it's it's a really interesting case study because on the one hand, it is one of a handful of sub-Saharan countries on track to meet some of the Millennium Development Goals. And on the other hand, there are still mothers who prostitute their daughters for income generation. Um, I just read some data that was collected three, four months ago specifically about that. It was an HIV, AIDS, and unintended pregnancy survey. And there is a lot of informal prostitution um, within families and within communities. Not to mention that, you know, ongoing difficulties of accessing safe, safe drinking water and our safe drinking water program is actually very helpful in that way. And, you know, the global burden of malaria is still very, very high in spite of, you know, massive net delivery. So these challenges are ongoing and we just need to stay really supportive of those grassroots initiatives that are making inroads and keep putting pressure on the political apparatuses to make sure that the funding streams and the political will is ongoing. The political will, you think, depends directly upon getting the word out in America to keep the pressure on then, I guess. Well, I am American, and so that's you know a lever I try to push. I'm new to social media, and I'm using it, however haltingly, to discuss these kinds of things. You know, on the one hand, I tweet about Kentucky basketball, and on the other hand, I just tweeted um, about a new chapter in a family planning book that is an excellent primer on the difference that modern contraceptives make. And a lot of women at the village level, if you ask anthropologists, say they live in terror of their next pregnancy. And then the cascades of benefits that come at the household, village, and national level when families are able to plan and space the births of their children are so heartwarming. And so I try to share that information through social media in America. And I do think that using those kinds of outlets can create a groundswell at our grassroots level that helps put pressure at the political will level. Ashley Judd, what do you think of Barack Obama's presidency so far? You know, I campaigned for Hillary and was kind of surprised that I did. I was very fully behind her. And then obviously really supported candidate Obama when he became the party's nominee. I was surprised at first that his very aspirational rhetoric of transformation during the campaign became transactional leadership within the system. Uh, So I spent about the first year and a half reeling. I was also very concerned by the dismantling of a lot of the the grassroots activism. I should say now that Professor Gans is my advisor. <laughs> so anyone who is aware of the great Marshall Gans will understand what I'm talking about. And since then, I don't mean for this to come across as ambivalent or a negative comment. I don't know what to think. I mean, it's just such Washington is just so dysfunctional and so screwed up. You've spent a lot of time. You said you, you went behind doors with with McConnell, does he really believe the crap that he spews? 
that movie came to mind, Being John Malkovich, wouldn't it be interesting if there was an exploration of being <laughs> Mitch McConnell? Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I guess they do. Well, the reason I mention it is because when I've talked to columnists, when I've talked to different people who actually interact in Washington in terms of pundits and, you know, I mean, we know what they're spewing and, and it, I find it hard to believe that these people actually believe what we're hearing. I can feel pretty hopeless and that hopelessness and despair can lead to being paralyzed if I allow myself to go there and think about it too much. And so I will leave that to other people who are better suited for that kind of reflection and inquiry. What is working for me is to constantly be vigilant about my own internal attitudes, to focus my external expression on self-responsibility and the next good, right, honest thing, and to just every day suit up and show up and let go of the outcome. Suit up and show up and let go of, you know, the Bhagavad Gita teaches that, the Bible teaches it. Most spiritual traditions stress that really what I'm responsible for is taking that next stitch. I don't know what the whole pattern is. The only thing I can influence is the quality of my next stitch. That's really where I have to keep it. Otherwise, I go to that hopeless place and become really ineffective because I'm paralyzed. How do you, you personally let go of the outcome? Well, it's a spiritual process, and I, you know, I make a distinction between letting go of the outcome and not having a vision, because of course I have a vision. I absolutely have a vision, and paradoxically, it's the vision that keeps me going, and the vision is a world of equality and justice and peace, of brotherhood and sisterhood, of an expression of the sanctity of life on all levels, including public policy and, you know, supranational entities, right. and I just constantly have to go back to relationship, you know, in Hillel's three questions. And then there's another quote in the book that's really meaningful to me from Robert Keegan who in his book, uh, well, the first book that he wrote on adult development, that if I really witness another person, I take the risk of becoming recruited to their welfare. And that's how I am motivated to do the next good, right, honest thing. It's informed by my empathy. It's informed by the fact that I have made myself vulnerable enough to be recruited to the welfare of another. And if I stay in that interdependence and in that relationship, then what emerges from me is going to be of a higher quality. I would say godly, but that's maybe a scary thing for people in <laughs> right. Berkeley to say. So I need to stress that it's, you know, the God of our individual understanding or God as I misunderstand her today, I sometimes say. The idea of being open and empathetic do you ever run across a kind of wall because you've had to put up walls around yourself because of paparazzi and the entire celebrity status? And yet at the same time, that shuts you off and it keeps you from true involvement with other people. Well, that's Hillel's first question. If I am not for myself, who will be for me? I do have to practice self-care. And self-care isn't selfish, it's self-esteem. Which and so, is keeping that wall up. Well, it's a boundary. I like to think of it as, as setting and maintaining a healthy boundary, which is different from a wall. Right. And setting a boundary and maintaining it, those are distinct art forms. And the maintaining it is much more difficult. So, for example, I'm at the Final Four in Houston. I'm sitting in the 76th row of an enormous section surrounded by thousands of people. And in between the two semifinal games, I get mobbed. 
I don't have a lot of empathy in that moment for anybody but myself, you know, and I go hide in a nacho stand because I'm emotionally flooded and I'm about to freak out. And when I go to that place and my neuroanatomical pathways are going crazy, I'm not really useful to anybody or to me. And I'm allowing myself in a way to be abused, traumatized, and victimized. And so I have to detach and put the focus on myself, take care of myself. Now that's really good self-care. And then at a book signing, for example, I try to, you know, set a boundary yet engage with each person who comes forward to have their book sign and to give them the dignity of being in that relationship with them. I'm neither greater than, I'm not lesser than. I'm one amongst the many, a person amongst people. You know, the Bible and the Talmud in particular so stresses names, you know, and the dignity of being named. And when we're objectified, we're nameless. So it's just a brief little thing, but to look someone in the eye and say their name is a way of acknowledging our shared humanity. And that's where my empathy comes out in those, you know, quote unquote, paparazzi moments. Yeah, it would seem on some level, I uh, 20 years ago, I went on a tour of Peru with someone who was a TV star at the time. We were stuck in some town in the Amazon because the planes didn't take off. It was cloudy, you know. And we were walking down the street and she said, for the first time in years, nobody recognized her and it was such a delight to just be a person. And and I wonder if for you, sometimes maybe going into some of these places where you are just a person is kind of a relief, even if the place itself is horrible. It's extraordinary. I love it. I absolutely love it. And, you know, the, the question that you brought up does have geographical distinctions. There's the North American piece, and then there's the Global South piece. And I love nothing more than being with people and just, you know, I'm a human being, not a human doing. And I love sitting with people and simply being. Do you sometimes, I don't want to use the word regret because you obviously, there was a lot that you took away from your career. But do do you sometimes kind of go, gee, you know, if I'd taken a different path now that I know what I can do, I wouldn't have to worry about that kind of stuff anymore. And I could just be empathetic all the time. I've never thought about that. In fact, as you were formulating the question, I immediately made up that you were going to ask if I regret having opted out of Hollywood or if I, you know, ever have that, oh my gosh, the money that I left on the table. And I think that the answer to both questions is I really don't. I really don't. I mean, there's a part of me that knows I could have joined the Peace Corps as was my intention and had a life of service in that way. But, you know, there is a God and it's not me. So I don't really spend a lot of time second guessing the way it's unfolded. Uh, Ashley Judd, you talk a little about the Catholic Church and liberation theology. And, and I see the two sides of that one as well. How do you view that? I mean, when you walk into a place, I mean, are you immediately going, oh, God, I hope they're Mary Knoll? Right. Yeah. Or <laughs> Jesuit. Yeah. Well, my introduction to liberation theology was in the kitchen of the Kappa Kappa Gamma House with Barbara the cook, whom I mentioned earlier. You know, more the question for me is if I walk into a Catholic church um, anywhere in the world, it's like, okay, is it going to be Jesus-focused or Jesus-centric? Those, in my experience, tend to be more radical and focused on social justice. And if they're Marian churches, then there tends to be, and this is a broad generalization, of course, but they tend to be more about a feminine, quote-unquote, ideal of compliance. 
you know, but interestingly, Mary is such a character of empathy. And there's an incredible painting I saw recently where Mary is sitting on a throne and she's a lady of consolation and a mother with a dead infant is grieving across Mary's lap, very much in a pieta, which is so cool that a woman is taking Jesus's place in that iconography. And obviously, you know, Mary knows what it's like to lose a son. And so it's a really powerful image. And I think that um, it's all about empathy. So that's kind of a digression from the question. But yes, I believe that um, there are priests and nuns around the world doing absolutely spectacular work. And I love meeting up with them wherever they are. And hopefully we're not going to see a shutdown of liberation theology, which of course has been ongoing in the church. It's so interesting, isn't it? You know, that there are people who, for whatever reason, having been raised in that tradition, want to work within the structure. You know, I I don't know that that's a choice I would make. I would probably leave and kind of do my own thing or group up with other people who were like-minded and wanted to go in a different direction. But there are priests and nuns for whom it's very important to stay within the church and agitate for progress and change internally. Ashley Judd. The book says uh, with Marianne Volers, which usually means a ghostwriter, but this book did not feel ghostwritten. Was she just pretty much an editor? I did write the book, and I take full responsibility for the text and all its glory and flaws. And Marianne was introduced to me as someone who has written incredible books before. And I don't mean to trivialize her contribution but I don't know how else to say this, there is a phenomenal amount of housekeeping that comes with a document like this. And Mary Ann was absolutely invaluable. I was in graduate school at Harvard. (laughs) I had 650 pages of diaries to pick through, selecting which narratives to include and which to omit was like a Sophie's choice for me. And Mary Ann helped so much. She became intimately familiar with all of my journeys, everything I've ever written in addition to the diaries. For example, when I'm talking about Chanticleer in the chapter, actually she contributed that title, Buttermilk and Morning Glories. That stuff that I had written about buttermilk and me and kind of when I tap into my inner mountain woman, that is a forward to a book on mountaintop removal coal mining. And she had read it and she said, This is an exquisite chapter that so genuinely captures your identity at home. Why don't we put it here? And I was like, great idea. Do you see yourself writing books on your own at this point? I think that the assistance is really helpful. I have a pretty crowded life. You know, there's ICRW and PSI and APNE app and my CGI Rethinking Refugees cohort. I'm on the board of Shaker Village. I've got the series now, I've got a marriage, you know, I've got the self-care and recovery. And I think that it's perfectionistic and unnecessarily tedious to say, oh, I'm going to do this entire thing by myself. You know, the writing is mine and that's a very personal, private, spiritual process for me. It's really essential and integral to my human rights work. So that I'm gonna keep doing for sure, for sure. And if there's another book that emerges from future diaries, I'll probably invite someone to help me with the process because otherwise it's it's too overwhelming and the book would still be a dream. It would still be a dream without Marianne. And in terms of your career in film or TV, a lot, I guess, would ride on how this 10-episode series goes. Yeah, we'll see. 
We'll see where it takes me. And do you see yourself down the road getting involved in politics? Maybe. Maybe. I certainly thought about it at the K school. I'm not sure that right at this moment it's the best use of me. I think that the traveling I do and hearing, you know, holding sex slaves, visiting labor slaves, talking with people about their altogether preventable health crises, talking about them with insults to their financial stability and the grassroots solutions, and celebrating the beautiful aid workers on that local level who've dedicated their lives to progress and transformation, like that's really where my heart and soul is right now. You know, if I ran for office, I wouldn't be able to do that traveling. And I'm not sure if living in Kentucky is all necessarily the best place for you to start, but who knows? I don't well, know. I actually live in rural Middle Tennessee. Oh, I'm sorry. That's I mean, okay. No, everyone has the impression I live in Kentucky, which is which is just fine. Kentucky is my Avalon and very much a um, an ancestral home. But we'll see. You know, I do think that a, a key part of the solution is for more women to run for office. And I'm a big fan of organizations like Emily's List that demystify that process and help women understand that they don't need a mysterious set of qualifications. They help a woman become qualified. And I know that uh, Congresswoman Pelosi's daughter um, in the Bay Area has a program that helps women run for office, too. You know, if I'm going to say that, then, gosh, maybe I need to apply it to myself. I'd like to say that there's plenty of time, but as you noted earlier, things look pretty dire right now. So I don't know. I don't know. Ashley Judd's TV series Missing, also starring Sean Bean, only lasted one season. Since then, she's appeared in several films, including the Divergent series, where she played a revolutionary, and will appear in the reboot of David Lynch's show Twin Peaks. She toyed with the idea of running against Mitch McConnell in 2014, but decided to continue to focus on her humanitarian efforts, which include working as a global ambassador for the United Nations Population Fund, the Polaris Project, and Population Services International. In addition, she serves on several other boards. For more information on Ashley Judd, you can go to ashleyjudd.com. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.